0: Before we get into John's Gospel, chapter 3, I'd just like to share a word that God dropped in my spirit the other Sunday and has reminded me of it this morning. And then we'll we'll move on. Um, I just felt the Holy Spirit prompt me with this word. Now, I'm trying to learn when God kind of gives a word, you don't try to flower it out. Don't make excuses for it. Don't try to soften the edges or whatever but just share what God gives and allow the Holy Spirit to do the rest and the word that the Holy Spirit dropped into my spirit was this don't have the abortion for the baby you carry I have a plan and a purpose for I have no idea who that's for. But I leave it with you to so see what God does as the weeks go by. If, if, it's, if it resonates with you and you need help, find some women, godly women in the church. Get some prayer. Get some help. But don't have the abortion. Because God has a plan and a purpose for your baby. We're continuing in our series in John's Gospel preparing the way, and we're looking at the tail end of John chapter 3. But before we get there, I'd just like to read some stuff that I I put together the other day as a way of kind of helping. I I was just struck by a a series of thoughts and thought, I need to put these figures down and check them out. So, in the world today, we have approximately 7.7 billion people. We have 650 nationalities, 196 countries, 6,500 spoken languages, 120 variations of English. Most of them are in the northeast. Why, Again, I'm getting the tune tonight. I've been practising that a long time. <laughs> <laughs> why I bonnie lad? <laughs> there's uh, approximately a hundred unconnected tribes around the world there are 4200 religions there's more than one billion false gods being worshipped today that's the world in which we live but let's remember there are only two kingdoms one you're born into And one you're born again into. Two kingdoms. No dualism. And one almighty God who created everything. And one Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and became man and dwelt amongst men and on the cross became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be called the righteousness of God. And while he is on the cross, God himself is in Christ reconciling himself to the world. What a mighty God we serve. And death could not hold Him. The grave couldn't contain Him. And on the third day, the same Spirit of God that reigns and, and dwells in you me raised Him from the dead. And today, He is seated on a throne in heaven. There is a man on a throne in heaven that is interceding for you and for me. There is no dualism in the world today. There may be confusion. There may be chaos. But there is no dualism. We live in a world that is full of self-awareness, self-esteem self-sufficiency, self-confident. It's all self, self, self. We also live in a world where the word less is on the increase. We have driverless cars, driverless trains. We have cordless equipment. We have bagless cleaners. We have powerless prime ministers. we We have pointless quiz games. We have We have powerless religious leaders. It's powerless. And we have a Christless society and a godless world. But Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And for that, we should be the most blessed people on the face of God's earth. Irrespective of what the condition looks like. Irrespective of how black it may appear. We are the most chosen and blessed people because of Jesus. Turn with me please to John's Gospel chapter 3. We're still on our series of preparing the way. Starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was water there. That's kind of helpful if you want to baptize people. I love the way John kind of states the obvious. And he says he does this because John wasn't in prison yet. Well, if he was in prison, he couldn't do it anyway. But John kind of raises the obvious first to help paint the picture of what is going on. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some, some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what he is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am, I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. The one Who comes from heaven, or who comes from above, is above all. And the one who comes from the earth belongs to the earth, and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the word of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the, in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life because the wrath of God is already resting on him. Just, um, I, I love this chapter, chapter 3. It's just... It's really fascinating. It starts off with a Jew that comes to Jesus. His name is Nicodemus. He comes seeking. He comes asking questions. He comes curious. He wants some satisfaction. And he comes to Jesus by night. He comes to Jesus by night, possibly because he's too busy to get there by day. And he cross-examines Jesus, but he gets an answer that he's not anticipating. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. It's not an option. If you want to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you must be born again. It's not a harsh command. It's an encouraging command. You must be born again. There is no other way in. You could be religious. You could come to church every Sunday. I used to go every Sunday morning, afternoon, early evening, late night, every Sunday, go to prayer meetings, go to Bible study. It makes no difference to God how good you think you are. You must be born again. And if you're not born again, you may be close, but you're not close enough. And so you've got this guy, Nicodemus, who is searching and seeking and looking for answers. And if you're not born again, let me encourage you today, Read this chapter. Read the conversation that Nicodemus has with Jesus. Read the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. See how Jesus opens it up for him. And then ask the question, Am I really born again? Do I fit? Where am I, if I'm not certain? But later on in the chapter, there's another Jew. And this Jew has a kind of a different approach. He starts an argument. It's what religious people do. He starts an argument about ceremonial washing. So is it right that you wash your feet when you come into my home? Is it right that you wash your hands before a meal? Is it right that you wash your hair and you unite yourself with oil? Is it right? And it's all this ceremonial religious stuff that this guy thinks is important. And he does it really so the disciples will get him to John. Because he wants an audience with the man himself. And so eventually he comes to John. And then he kind of... A, And covers himself a bit. And you get the real reason as to why he's come to see John. And so eventually he says to John. you know that guy that the other side of the Jordan? That you kind of pointed out to. The one that you said. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well guess what? He's baptizing on your patch. Exactly. He's (laughs) baptizing on your patch. And guess what? Everyone is going to him just divisive. Religious people are incredibly divisive. They want to set one person against another. Now, we've been called by God to prepare the way for the next season. That's what John was called to do. Now, whether it's a way, a pathway, a roadway, a driveway, a railway, a dual carriageway, a motorway, a runway, or a highway for the Lord, they all have something in common. In order to prepare the way, we have to get rid of the rubbish. We have to get rid of the stuff that gets in the way. Many years ago, Barack Obama, God bless him, was visiting the Welsh Assembly in Cardiff. And they decided that part of his route down the M4 corridor was to do a diversion through Newport. Now, the people in Newport, just clueless, really, it's got to be said. Which is why I left. I'm not kidding. So the council, he said, they're going to spend a lot of money preparing the way for Barack Obama. All the litter is going to disappear. Where there's potholes, they're going to fill them in. They're going to get the road as smooth as possible. And the people in Newport go, why are we spending all this money just for him for a 10-minute journey? Because after he's gone past, guess what? They're not going to put the litter back on the floor. They're not going to dig up the holes again. You get to benefit because he is coming through. And when Jesus comes through, other people will get the benefit of the grace of God that is suddenly expressed. But we need to open our eyes as we get involved in preparing the way and being allowed and allowing God to prepare the way in us. Now, this guy is incredibly religious. What's interesting about religious people, though, I grew up in a Christian family. My dad was an evangelist. He was in full-time ministry, and I got four, uh, three brothers that are just a little bit older than myself, and a younger sister. Now, meal times always happened: eight o'clock, one o'clock, five thirty, and supper at nine. And at every meal, we prayed before and we prayed after. Sometimes we prayed the food in. Sometimes we thanked God that my mother had cooked it and we were still alive and it tasted okay. But you know, I am here to tell the tale. Right? So that was the kind of environment. But meal times were chaos. But well, it would be with four lads. Three of them were noisy and I was the quiet one. <laughs> but my mother had this interesting way of interrupting the, the, the conversation with bizarre kind of comments, sometimes totally random. I think, what planet are you on, like? But anyway, she tried to straighten the mirror with a hammer on one occasion, but that's a different story. <laughs> So she, she interjects into this buoyancy that's going on, and she says, Now, I want you boys to know, as you get older, don't you ever bring trouble home to this house? Don't you come home, you're drunk, your father's reputation would be ruined. So well, what is my health and safety more important than his reputation? Well, that was about the, the early 1960s, 1972, late November. I'm ready to go out. I'm caught in Babs. We're not married yet, but we've been going out a little while and my second eldest brother, that was my mother's kind of favourite, hasn't arrived home from work. She's pacing the kitchen floor. She's chomping at the bit. The tea is on the table, the tea is cold, it's ruined, and that's just not helpful. Like, that didn't add, didn't, that added to the insult, really. But Peter has not come home. I hope he gets to listen to this. Peter did not come home on time. And she's pacing up and down in the kitchen. There's a, there's a pathway being worn warned in, warned in, 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 the, in the lino. We weren't posh enough to have vinyl. We had lino. And there's, there's this pathway. That the pattern is disappearing with every time she's back and forth. Suddenly there's a knock on the front door. She flies in the passageway because we weren't posh enough to call it a hallway. She opens the front door. There's a lad from next door. It's not going to be Peter because he should have come down the back steps. We all knew that. It's the lad from next door, Ian Clark. My mother was not gracious. What do you want? She said. Well, he, stu- he stood there, I'm in the background watching, trying to not laugh out loud. Um, well, it's about Peter. What's wrong with Peter? Well, we lived at the end of the street and we had a side garden because we were semi-posh. Um, well, he's under the hedge. And I-, and I think he's drunk. Drink?" She said "Drink? What do you mean drink?" Well, he said calmly, He's under the hedge, and I think he's drunk. It was a scene from Mrs. Bouquet, Keeping Up Appearances. It really was, man, it was just horrifying. She pushed him out of the way. She rushed around the side of the house. She did not care as he sprained his ankle, as he broken a leg, as he'd broken an arm, as he dislocated a shoulder, as he'd broken his neck. He'd slipped on the bank, rolled, and ended up under the hedge, and she grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, and she dragged him physically into the house, back up the passageway, into the sink, over the sink she put his head, and she turned the cold water tap on the back of his head and preached at him. Hellfire, damnation, condemnation, brimstone, she went for it. And I was beside myself. Thank God it's not me. (laughs) But her reputation, and her father's reputation, was more important than his safety. And while his head is over the sink, and the water... If we'd had a meter, we'd still be in debt today. And the water is pouring on him. And he is going, oh, don't preach at me, man. Don't preach at you. It's about time somebody preached at you. Don't you know? And so she went on and on and on. But religious people are often more concerned about personal reputation than they are about somebody else's safety and well-being. Philippians 2 says... He made himself of no reputation and took on himself the form of a man and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is true to this day. He is still Lord of of Lords. He is still King of Kings, irrespective of how religious we try and be. Now, another thing we used to do, being religious, was on a Sunday morning, we would go to church. And I'm breaking the mold. You'd have to have a black suit and a white shirt and a somber tie. The women could wear any color fancy hats they chose, but the men, black suit white shirt, and a big black Bible. And if you weren't big enough to carry a big black Bible, you just had a Bible storybook, and you had to carry it like this. Because you were going to church. And you would walk, not in a much of a hurry, but you would just, just a load of claptrap. Just a load of religious rubbish that we kind of get attached to, thinking it's godly. But Jesus says, to the Jews of his day, you have a form of godliness, but you deny its power. Now, to bring that story of my brother into another context, Jesus understood exactly what that was like before he was born. You know, the story in Luke about the birth of Jesus is fascinating. And there's a bit there that kind of misleads us slightly. There's a bit that says there was no room at the inn. So it's great, isn't it? It's a, lovely, it's a lovely phrase. We have a lot of Christmas pantomimes made out of it, and that's fine. And parents come along and listen to the Christmas story. But the reality is that the phrase, if you were to wind it back, it should be, there's no room in the taverna. Well, you can't put tavern in the Bible because that's not acceptable. But taverna really means ancestral home. And that's where the story kind of suddenly takes on, for me, a new light. Because Mary and Joseph leave Nazareth, 80 mile, 90 mile. We don't know whether she had a donkey or not, but we assume she did. But they make a 90 mile journey to Bethlehem. I imagine the conversation on the way is not about where are we going to stay, because he is going to his ancestral home. The conversation may be, uh, what do your parents think? There's no mobile phone. There's no internet. There's no way of getting the message to them ahead of time of, oh, an angel has appeared to me and and, an angel has appeared to Joseph as well and it's all convinced and everybody's hunky-dory with it. They don't know. And they get to Bethlehem. Now, the taverna is made up of at least two levels. The ground floor is stables. It's where the cattle live, where the mangers are, where the stalls are. And the next floor up, And possibly a second floor, if it's a large family, is the living quarters. And eventually they arrive at Bethlehem. And they go up up the outside set of stairs to the main door, which will be locked on the inside. And they knock on the door. Maybe before they've arrived, other family members are there. And the conversation goes, anybody heard from Joseph? How was he doing? How was the business in Nazareth? What time is he arriving? Does anybody know? Anybody heard anything? And suddenly there's a knock on the door. And the door gets opened and they take one look at Mary and they say, there's no room for you in here. You're not welcome. There is no room in the ancestral home. And they're put downstairs, underground, in the stable, where it's not clean and it's very smelly. He came to his own, John says in John chapter 1. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Domestically, he is rejected go to Luke 4. He comes to his own locally and locally he is not accepted. They want to throw him off the cliff. You go to the end of the Gospels, he comes to his own nationally. And nationally, he is not accepted, and they crucify him. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called children of God. We have an incredible privilege because of what Jesus went through. And if you're suffering with rejection today, he's been there. He understands it, whether it's from your parents, whether it's from your family, whether it's from your community, whether it's from your nation. Jesus understands the rejection that we go through. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he took our rejection so that we could enjoy the Father's acceptance. He's been there. He knows your pain. He knows the anguish. He knows the sorrow that you carry. He's been a, he identifies with it from birth, pre-birth, up to his, re- up to his death. He understands the, re- the, the rejection that you and I experience at the hands, very often, of religious people. Religious people have this incredible way of kind of making themselves more superior than anybody else. They tend to gloat over the past as to what they've done what they've achieved, what they've attained, what they've become. And there's very little talk of their walk with God today. But we have a prophecy weighing over us, which is from Isaiah 54, about enlarging the place of your tent, stretching the tent of your curtain white, strengthening your stakes, lengthening your cords. Imagine a big, marquee. Now the big marquee years ago used to have great big wooden stakes that would come in at 45 degree angles and the tent would be stretched out with huge ropes securing them. Well if it's not looked after, eventually the thing kind of sags and and the stakes kind of start to tip inwards and the ropes get slack and the canvas sags. And if the canvas sags too long, it will eventually hold water, rainwater, especially in this country. Sometimes in Greece too. Hey, it rained, I'm not kidding you. Uh, but, but the sagging canvas collects stagnant, lifeless water. And God says, Strengthen your stake, lengthen your cords, stretch. Your, the tent of your curtain out wide. Wait, take up the slack. Get rid of that which is lifeless. Get rid of that which is, has no life in it. Get rid of the stagnant stuff. Get rid of religiosity. Get rid of sup, uh, religious superiority. Get rid of the stuff that hinders me from moving freely amongst you. Now you may be sat there thinking, well, I, mean, I am just not religious, brother. Praise God if you're not. But religious people have this way of kind of... Well, here's a, a classic... I used to hear from time to time, people would say, well, you don't mean that the Lord would expect me to tithe, surely. I mean, after all, brother, I I give my money to to save the world. I give my money to save the whale. I give my money to rescue the the leopards in India. Leopards, for those of us who have never been to India. Leopards, they call them. You don't expect me to tithe, surely. Yes, God does. Forget the claptrap. God does. God expects us to tithe on gross. Why? Because he's done it all. And in the Garden of Eden, he said to Adam, all these trees are for you, except that one. That one belongs to me. Don't touch it or you die. Don't eat from it. You're dead. Well, if you want God to really bless you, you have to deal with what's in your pocket first. We have to put this stuff to one side, the arguments that we have. And you may say, Well well Jesus never taught tithing. No he didn't. Because the religious people of his day did it religiously. You don't teach people to do it when they're already doing it. They tithe down to the very herbs in their garden. They get the, the mint and then they go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine. Mine. One for God. One, mine. They were so religious about the way in which they, they tithed everything that Jesus had no need to teach them. But he had to teach them how to rule in the Sabbath. Don't let the Sabbath dominate you. I heard a story recently of a Jew in Gateshead that was going to see a friend on the Sabbath. going there for a meal. And the friend lived on the 14th floor of a tower block. So on the Sabbath he's allowed to walk about three miles. So he walks, he gets to the tower block. Fourteen floors. He can't press the button to call the lift. Because it's work. Absolutely true. But he can walk 14 floors and be totally exhausted when he gets there. And that's acceptable. Come on, that's not the way God's grace is meant to work for us. But legalism and religiosity will always, always trap you and rob you of freedom that we are meant to enjoy in Christ. It was for freedom, Paul says in Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Well, why not enjoy some freedom? Why not take the weight of the yoke of religiosity off your shoulders and enjoy some freedom? Now, I think if I am honest, in, in a church like this, it works in a more subtle kind of way. So if you're part of the prophetic group, which I'm part of, we have to be careful. Because if somebody is up prophesying regularly, you think, oh, well, maybe I should. That's religious. You haven't got to do it just because somebody else does it more than you. Just be blessed that they're doing it. Just thank God they're hearing God more than you are. But go back home and and hear God for yourself and get on your knees or walk the room or whatever you have to do to hear God. But tune in yourself to develop your own walk with God, not get jealous over somebody else. It's religious rubbish. You might be in a band and you have four or five different groups of worship leaders. Thank God we have excellent worship in this place. But religiosity can creep in and put jealousy in place. Think, oh, they always do a better job than I do. And I wish I could have thought that song when I was up. No, it's, it's rubbish. We have to deal with this. Stuff. We have to stretch the tent out wide. We have to strengthen the stakes and lengthen the cords so that we make room for God. The tent doesn't get that much bigger. But the footprint of influence suddenly grows a little bit. And it's more comfortable inside when the canvas is stretched on the outside. There's a bit more headroom for some of us. But we have to be diligent about it. If God wants us to prepare the way, we have to do it diligently before God. Not religiously. Not super spiritually. But we have to be honest before God. So what we're not going to have today is an appeal where you come forward. Because it's the kind of thing where you may want to just do business with God. Or may just sing a song in a few moments. It may be that you suddenly realize, I'm doing this. That's actually religion. That's, that's a religious thing. My mother would witness to anybody and everybody because she thought God loved her a lot more because she did. And it was an embarrassment. I used to cringe. But she had this kind of way. I think It just doesn't cut any ice with God at all. See, John's answer to this guy is brilliant. John doesn't get sucked into the argument of Jesus over there and he's having more more effect than you are and and everybody's going to him. John, I think the guy, the Jew is expecting John to put his arm around his shoulder, pat him on the back and say, well, guess what? What you can do for me is this. You go to Capernaum and you tell him in Capernaum, I'm on my way. And then when I get to Capernaum, you go to Bethsaida and I'll go there next. And so the guy becomes his marketing manager. And suddenly he gets what he's after. But John just cuts it dead. And then in the middle of his, his kind of explanation to this guy, he says, My joy is full and he must increase. And I must decrease. And I was challenged wherever we are at in a walk with God is always to decrease for Jesus. It's tough. Because some of us like the limelight. It's just one of those things, isn't it? It kind of happens. You're comfortable there. It may, but Decrease. He must increase. Why? Because the praise and the honor and the glory and the majesty all go to Him. And we just get to follow in his wake and are pleased because, thank you, God, that we are co-workers with you. I mean, that's staggering. The creator of heaven and earth, and you're a co-worker with him. And he's pleased to call you brethren, and he's pleased to call us friends, and he's pleased to call us sons and daughters, and we want to be religious. No, no, let's be family. Let's allow the Spirit of God to keep preparing us over and over again. And even through the next wave of God's Spirit, whatever, whatever that looks like. And I believe God is not going to tell us on purpose. I believe the, the verse in, in Habakkuk where God says, I will work a work in your day that you wouldn't believe even if I were to tell you. I think God has written that over us, but he wants us to be diligent in the preparation. So that as we diligently allow his spirit of access within us and to sort out the rubbish, the super spirituality stuff, the religious nonsense, then we make a way for the king to come in. Jesus ended up saying to the Pharisees in his day, the kingdom of heaven is taken from you and given to a nation that will produce the fruits of it. Thank God that includes us. But may it never be said that God has to come to us and say, the glory is departed. Ichabod is the word in the Old Testament. The glory is departed. May we always be a people that pursue God because the name resting over us is an investment from God. Emmanuel, God with us. It's God's investment in us that we keep pursuing him for whatever is coming next. Later on, John is in prison and he says to two of his disciples, Will you go and see Jesus? Will you ask him, Are you the one or do we look for another? Just a good question to ask because if God were to suddenly break out somewhere else in the city, we'd be wise to say, Is that God over there? What can we learn from what God is doing there? And I love the answer from Jesus. You can find it in Matthew. It's brilliant. But Jesus says to the disciples of John, Go back and tell John, The deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the kingdom is preached to the poor. It's a brilliant answer. May that be our testimony when God pours his spirit out here, and other people say, Is that God? May they be able to go away and say, oh, the deaf here, the blind see, that etc." May there be testimony after testimony after testimony of the grace of God at work increasingly amongst us. Can we stand, please? Can the band come back on the stage? Just going to take a few moments, like the band, just to play quietly. As we just give ourselves to God and just ask God afresh. Where is there death in my life? Because that's what religion is. It keeps you separate from God. It keeps you away from a living relationship with Jesus. It makes it work based instead of grace centered. Just going to take a few moments. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now that for all of us, you come light of the world. You shine into us. Show us areas, Father, where we need to deal with. Religious rubbish that we have gathered or collected over the years. That you, by your Spirit, will help us to be a people prepared by you and for you. For the glory of your Son. Just ask yourself a moment. What religious stuff have I got? Do I think it necessary always to kneel by my bed to pray? Which we used to years ago. Do I find it necessary that I must witness in order to seal my salvation? No. You're saved by grace. How religious am I with my money? We mentioned it earlier. Am I free to tithe? May God bless you and make you freer. Amen, said all the elders. (laughs) May God make us a generous people. Because He has been incredibly generous with us. He became of no reputation and took on himself the form of a man and the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The chapter goes on to say, complain about nothing. And when you put in context of what Jesus went through without complaining, what right have we got? But religious people like to complain. And if complaining is where you're at, may God deliver you today and give you a spirit of joy and freedom that will rise above your circumstances. Holy Spirit, we ask you that in these days you glorify Jesus in our midst for the sake of your Son and the extension of your kingdom. Amen.